0: We're looking at this series, the promised one, we've been doing that for a number of weeks, looking at some of the Old Testament passages that uh, point to the person of Christ. And today we're in something of a crescendo of that series. It's the last one of that series. We're looking at really what I think is one of the most incredible passages in the Old Testament which speaks and, uh, and prophesies of the person of Christ. We're going to look at that, Isaiah chapter 53. So if you've got a church Bible, uh, it's page 1069 page 1069. Now, this is written 700 years before the person of Christ. And really, as we're going to look at it, we'll see that it has incredible predictive power. What I mean by that is, as you compare how it describes uh, this servant who will come, and you compare that, if you're at all familiar with the ministry of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, you'll see there's an incredible um, commonality. There are a number of different threads that point so clearly to the person of Christ. I don't come from a Christian family, and I um, opened this up once with my family, and I, I said to them, I read this passage to them, and my parents, sorry, from a Jewish background, and um, I read this to my family, and as they heard it, they said, yeah, that's, that's talking about Jesus, that's, that's from the New Testament. I said, oh no, actually, this is from the Old Testament, written 700 years before the person of Christ. And they were really surprised. They were, they, they were they, actually, they, then they quite quickly changed their reaction like, oh no, it could be talking about anyone. Which to me <laughs> just basically points to the fact that you'll believe whatever you want to believe eventually. But, but there's a point there that there was, they, the first reaction was, this is definitely talking about the person of Christ. Actually, in Acts chapter 8, uh, there's an Ethiopian um, eunuch, a kind of a, a governmental figure, and he uh, looks at, the, he's reading this passage and he asks Philip, uh, who is this passage talking about? And Philip explains him and shows him that this is talking about the person of Christ. And immediately, he wants to be baptized. Immediately, he wants to follow Christ. There's a, there's a sense to which he reads this, and he's gripped, and he turns his life around right there and then as he reads this passage. So I think you'll see incredible predictive power um, in this description of Christ. Why don't we read it? I'm going to start from uh, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. I'll read all of chapter 53. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. "'stricken for the transgression of my people. "'And they made his grave with the wicked "'and with a rich man in his death, "'although he had done no violence "'and there was no deceit in his mouth. "'Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. "'He has put him to grief. "'When his soul makes an offering for sin, "'he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. "'The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. "'Out of the anguish of his soul, "'he shall see and be satisfied.' By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me pray. Lord, we just ask that you would open up your word to us. You say it's sharper than a double-edged sword. We just ask that you would pierce hearts today with this truth as we see Christ written in this, this passage hundreds of years before he arrived. Would you point us to him? Amen. Now if you're not a Christian I, I will uh, admit that you may have found some of that difficult to understand but I'm convinced that by the time we get to the end of this sermon I think you'll be confident that you'll be able to see Christ in this passage. Now actually as you dig into this, you'll see this, this passage can really only make sense when you understand the person of Christ and his ministry. See, verse 9 has three seemingly um, contradictory truths about this servant. So you see three things. First of all, that he um, is a perfect man. It describes as being no, no violence and no deceit. So he's lived a perfect life. Yet it also describes him as dying with the wicked, so then they made his grave with a wicked. So he's going to die a death that marks him out as a wicked man. So wait a second, he's lived a perfect life, and yet he's going to be, die with a, as a wicked man. Those two are contradictory in themselves. And then it adds a third truth. It says, he will, and with a rich man in his death. So we're buried with a rich man. Well, if you've been died as a wicked man, is it really likely that you'd be then buried in a kind of rich grave? Wouldn't you be, be kind of uh, thrown away uh, in a kind of unmarked grave? Actually, if you know anything of Christ's life, you'll see that he uniquely fulfills these three descriptions. See, according to the Gospel accounts, according to the eyewitnesses, the people who spent the most time with Jesus, they saw his life and they saw it as perfect. They saw they had no sin, no violence, no deceit. This is a perfect uh, read-across to Jesus' life. You see that he was killed with the wicked. If you know th- anything about Jesus, you'll know that he was crucified, that he died on a, a tortuous, horrific death on a Roman cross. This is, this is a death which is reserved for the wicked, Actually, a Roman citizen wouldn't even be crucified. It's a a death that is kind of so horrible, humiliating, and gruesome that it is reserved for the wicked. And then the third truth, this even speaks about how Jesus will be buried. See, you may not know this, but in the Gospel accounts, a man called Joseph of Arimathea uh, goes to Pilate and asks to take his body and put it in his family grave. Now, to have a family grave essentially marks you out as a kind of rich man in itself, to be able to have the wealth to afford a grave. And so right there, we see that Jesus is the man who uniquely fulfills these three seemingly contradictory statements. He, he's lived a perfect life, he's uh, died a death that marks him out as a wicked man, and he's buried in a rich man's grave. And as we we'll see this as we unpack the passage, that this can only really be talking about Jesus. Now, this speaks, I think, to some of the concerns and questions that some of you will have about the authority of the Bible. Now, for, when we ask that question, when we think about the authority of the Bible, there are different answers that we can give uh, how, but essentially, how are Christians convinced the Bible is God's word, that God is speaking his words through human authors, but God is the author behind the Bible? Now, one of those things we can say, well, look, it's very historically reliable. and We can look at manuscript evidence. We can look at uh, the way the, the distance between when the accounts were written and when, they were, uh, sorry, when the events were depicted and the accounts were written down. All sorts of different historical evidence that speaks to the reliability of the gospel accounts and the rest of the New Testament and as, as we go on, the Old Testament. But you can also trace the way that God speaks through the different authors. That actually there's a, there's a kind of, um, there are d- multiple different authors, 40 plus different authors of the Bible written in t- different times and in different places. And yet through those different authors, the same threads emerge. That actually it's almost like, well, it's not, there's not multiple different authors, there's one author behind these different books. And you see this really powerfully in the book of Isaiah. Actually, you see that, Um, All the way through the Old Testament, there are hundreds of different prophecies uh, written by different authors at different times across a span of number of years, uh, which together, hundreds of years later, Jesus shows that he uniquely fulfills. What this says to you, if you're not a Christian, you have to at least say you can't ignore the claims that Christ is making. You at least, just on the basis of this alone, the fact that Jesus uniquely fulfills all these different threads of prophecies that come together in him hundreds of years after those are written, you have to at least say, well, how how is that possible? And actually you'll see that these these prophecies are not within his control. They talk about where where he was born, how he'll die, how he'll be buried. You know, you don't decide those things about your own life. So he uniquely fulfills them, and he couldn't have just taken them and said, right, I'm just going to go around and do all of these things and make myself out to be the Messiah. He alone is the answer to these prophetic claims. Now, it's very easy to read Christ backwards into Isaiah 53, but what I want to do with you this morning is get behind the story. I want you to imagine yourself as a, as a part of the people of Israel hearing this uh, prophetic song, as it's described, this, uh, this, this passage um, and, and, and understand, well, how are they hearing this? And what, what are they expecting? And what, what we're going to see actually is that, that this servant is very different to the servant that they were expecting to save the people of Israel. Think about the passages we've already looked at. We looked at Psalm 110 uh, the last couple of weeks. We looked at the, a victorious king who is going to come and bring judgment on the nations. Even in Isaiah 49, just a few chapters before, where this servant is introduced. We get the picture of this idea of like a, a servant who will be something of a global statesman. He will bring the nations back to God. So as soon as you get impression, I think it would be fair to say, before you read this passage, if you're part of the people of Israel and you're thinking, who is this uh, Messiah figure? Who is this person coming to save the people of Israel? You're thinking there's going to be a king. There's going to be someone who's going to lead his people. You're going to be someone who's going to have a, a global profile. Now those things are all true and we're going to come on to those. But actually this description of the servant who comes in weakness and comes to die is utterly different to what they're expecting. But actually, I would also argue this is probably different to what you're expecting. If you're not a Christian, the idea that there is one man who will save the world, one man who is the solution to humanity's greatest problems, the, the broken relationships, the, the, all the different inequalities, the brokenness in our culture. Um, it doesn't take a very... Uh, difficult, it doesn't take very long to look around our culture and see there's all sorts of different things in our world that are broken and not as, it, not as they should be. And when you look at those problems around the world, I think if you're not a Christian, it is not immediately obvious that there will be one man who will answer those problems. Not least a man who lived 2,000 years ago, born in a Middle Eastern backwater and who uh, worked as a carpenter and then um, had a ministry for three years. So how could he be the hope for humanity? But I want to argue that he too is not what you're expecting, but he's exactly who you need. I'll show you that as we look through this passage, that although he's not the servant, not the saviour that you're expecting, he's exactly who you need. So first of all then, we have to look at why is the servant here? Why is the servant here? And the answer is rebellion in your heart. Rebellion in your heart. See, right from the beginning, when we introduce this person, the servant, in Isaiah, we get this picture that this servant is on a reconciliation mission, bringing the people of Israel and the nations back to God. In Isaiah 49, he describes it like this, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob, that's Israel, back to him that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and the God my God has become my strength. So he's going to bring Israel back to the Lord. And then he goes on. It is not too light a thing that, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to, be, uh, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this servant is going to be both on a mission to bring Israel back to God And you've got to understand the context here, that the people of Israel have been persistently rebellious, persistently disobedient, that God has called them to obedience, and they've run away, they've rejected him. In fact, right now, Isaiah's writing to the people of Israel as they're in exile in Babylon. They've already lost this promised land that God had provided for them because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience. It's a picture, really, of something like a marriage breakdown. One party in that marriage has been consistently unfaithful. Perhaps they've they've come back and they said, yeah, I'm going to be faithful. But they've just been unfaithful again and again. And actually, you have to really get into the Old Testament and kind of see this pattern. Because I think by this point, if you read even just the book of Isaiah all the way through and get to this point, you will be asking, is there any hope? Can they even be reconciled? There's a sense of which you think, isn't God just going to wash his hands with these people? Can, can he really accept their continuing rebellion? But actually, this passage shows us that this kind of rebellion, this disobedience, is not just lo- uh, located in the people of Israel. Actually, it's a, a universal problem. In verse uh, 6, of chapter 53, it says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, he's not just describing this kind of behavior of disobedience. Actually, he's describing something of an inherent orientation to the self. Really, when I describe rebellion in your heart, I'm saying there's a kind of internal, the heart in biblical language really is talking about your desires. He's saying there's an inherent rebellion towards God. And actually, you can see this in a number of different ways, and they all begin with self. You can see something of a a self-righteousness in all of us. The assumption that we all start with that we're essentially in the right. Think about when you come into an argument. It's no surprise that when you're arguing that person that you believe that you're right. That's something we just take for given. Now, of course, some of us are open to be persuaded. But we start with the default assumption that we are right. You just have to look at some of the online dialogue that goes on, the the vitriol to which people contradict each other and challenge each other on things like Twitter, etc. The sense to which it's so obvious that we are so quick to assume our own rightness, our own Uh, both that we are right and that we are somehow better than others. We're very quick to judge other people, very quick to write others off and suggest that they're really worse than ourselves. There's also something of a self-centeredness here, something of a sense that that we are the center of the universe, that we uh, ultimately, we look out for ourselves, that we really, when we think about life, we're saying, well, how is this going to benefit me? Now, of course, we might kind of use language that doesn't, doesn't reflect that truth, because we know that these are kind of socially unacceptable, but actually if we look down in our hearts, if we look down in our desires, we'll see that these are bubbling under the surface. There's also something of a, of a self-determination, a kind of desi- a decision, a desire for your own autonomy, for your own control, for your own control, for to be in control of your own life. And this is what I think he's describing when he says, all have turned everyone to his own Way, a desire to be in control. Now, how can this be wrong? Many of you would ask this, if you're in our culture, if you spent any time at all um, in in London or the West or anywhere like that, you'll see that the kind of value of autonomy is a pretty highly held one. The ability to decide your future is essential to human flourishing. We live in something of an age of expressive individualism, that we say, Well, I've got desires in me, and I'm gonna be happiest when I have the ability to express those desires. So of course I'm going my own way. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with that. I think uh, the Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way, is still the most popular funeral song in Britain. I Did It My Way. That's the, the resounding anthem that people are, are celebrating about their lives. But actually, I think this uh, worldview really misunderstands the fundamental design for humanity. You can see this in the, verse, the beginning of the verse. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. You see, there's throughout the Bible a picture of, of humanity as a kind of sheep and God as the good shepherd. Actually, that in a sense, that hum, humans are made to be led as followers, led to independence and in obedience to the God who made them. And really, well, I think this, this worldview, the contemporary worldview, that, uh, would make two mistakes. The first one is that it overestimates humanity. So, Actually, what I want to argue is that we're not as good or as intelligent or as wise as we think we are. Actually, you can see this by uh, the myth of being true to yourself. Think about it. If you were actually to go around your life being true to every one of your desires, every desire that you ever felt, you said, I've just got to be true to this desire, I think you'll find that that would reap destruction in your life. Who of you who've been on the tube, crowded on a Monday morning, have not wanted to commit violence to your fellow commuter? Or <laughs> well, who of you, if you're in a relationship, have not had a desire for somebody else? Actually, we know, I think almost we actually, although we use the mantra of autonomy and this value of making our own decisions, actually we know that we have all sorts of different faulty desires. Desires that actually, if they were acted upon, would not be best for ourselves. But I think also this worldview misunderstands God. You see, sometimes in our culture we think of God as some kind of aggressive dictator grasping for control. Actually, he presents himself as a good shepherd who is essential for the welfare of the sheep that he is leading, that he knows what's best for them. He's able to protect them from danger. Sheep are utterly uh, incapable animals. They need their shepherd to protect them, to lead them, to help them find good pasture. And yet these selves, this self-desire self desire uh, for self-control, this self-centeredness, this self-righteousness, turns us away from our good shepherd. I'd go further and say the very characteristics that our culture values, this uh, autonomy, this self, all this self, self-centeredness, etc. actually are what causes our mutual destruction. Think about greed. Think about the inequality in the world. Actually, there's far, there are enough resources for everyone to be able to eat. And yet we know that that's not the case, that some are starving of hunger. Why? Because of greed. There are broken relationships. Families broken down. Fathers not caring for their children. Why? Well, because of that, that kind of self, self-interest. Even things like adultery. That's ultimately a selfish sexual desire. Even our political narrative is full of competing interests, fighting for the resources. The selfishness that I describe is absolutely at the center of of humanity. Actually, I would go further and say this rebellion is intractable. It's intrinsic to human nature. No one had to teach you to be this way. You know, we talk about being naturally talented. I'm a natural violinist or I'm a natural entrepreneur or uh, whatever, natural different talents that you have. I want to say actually you've got a natural talent in being self-interested. You're naturally self-righteous. You're naturally self-centered. There's a rebellion in our hearts. And this, of course, causes a chasm between us and God. This intractable rebellion towards God, like the people of Israel. We become opposed to him. We're going our own way. And actually, I think sometimes uh, the average Londoner, you might say, well, I don't consciously oppose God. Maybe I just ignore him. He's not really part of my life. I would say, actually, that apathy is, is almost as bad as even just being directly opposed to God because his claim is that he is the good shepherd. He is the one who should lead your life. So by ignoring him, by separating yourself off from him, you're effectively doing the same thing as someone who says, I'm directly opposed to you. So, of course, as we, as we look at this rebellion that I think we can all recognise... The pregnant question is, how do we deal with this rebellion? And of course, enter God's servant with his unexpected reconciliation plan. Enter God's servant with his unexpected reconciliation plan. See, he's utterly different to what they're expecting, both in what he does, how he does it, and how the story ends. First of all, what he does is not what they're expecting in the sense that they're expecting, I think, one of two things. They're either expecting a servant like Isaiah who will come and pronounce judgment on the people of Israel. He will, he will remind them, or, or, or not just remind them, actually announce a judgment coming from God on the people of Israel. We've seen this all the way through the, people, uh, the history of Israel. Or they're expecting a king who will bring judgment on the nations. Think about that Psalm 110 that we looked at. It uses very colorful language. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath filling the nations with corpses. They're either expecting a king who will bring judgment on them or one who will bring judgment on the nations. But actually, the servant doesn't come to bring judgment on either. Actually, he comes to bring judgment on himself. Of course, this is a partially correct picture. Jesus is the king, the God-man, who has authority over the whole world, who's reigning right now at the right hand of the Father and who will come back one day to judge the living and the dead, to unleash wrath on those who remain opposed to him. But to just have that in your picture misses the central reconciliation plan of this servant. Rather than announcing judgment on Israel or the nations, this servant comes to bring judgment on himself. The centerpiece of this song is that the servant experiences judgment. You can see this in verse 4. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. To be smitten by God is to experience God's judgment. Again, a little bit further detail in verse five. But he was wounded for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. Both of those really are talking about that si- that rebellion that I was describing. That sin is what the Bible calls uh, this rebellion. Saying he is being punished for our rebellion. Describes upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The well, word chastisement really means punishment. And with his stripes we are healed. By stripes, it's really talking about like a kind of physical a physical punishment. And so he's saying that there's a kind of punishment here on this servant, but through his punishment, others will benefit. So they will receive peace and that they will be healed. In verse 8, he goes on, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, cut off from the land of the living. So this punishment that this servant experiences will end in death. See, the judgment of God is not being meted out on the rebels, those who are in open rebellion to God, but actually upon his servant. He will be killed for the sake of others. Now, of course, when you look at it, the death that the, the, the servant's describing is, is both unexpected, but it's also at the very center of Christ's ministry. If you look through the gospel, sometimes almost half the gospel is is given to the the narrative leading up to Christ's death. So it's a a moment of great significance. He was uh, taken, put up on a cross, nailed to the cross, pierced. In um, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Sometimes that can be translated as pierced for our transgressions. He was nailed to the cross. A gruesome and painful death. One of great humiliation and suffering. And yet there's no doubt that there's a theme running through this passage that his death has a purpose. His death is targeted towards that very rebellion that he describes in verse 6. He's crushed for our iniquities. In verse 10, his soul will make an offering for sin. So his death is for our sins. It's directly addressing that rebellion. Now again, this passage may not mean much to you, but If you're an Israelite reading this passage, this idea of sin offering will be one that makes a lot of sense. See, all the way through uh, the Old Testament, you get this picture of this sacrificial system that God sets up. And particularly like a book like Leviticus, you'll see um, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would take a bull and a goat and he would um, use them to make atonement, to make a restitution for the sins of the people. He would both kill them and then sprinkle their blood on the mercy seat in the temple. That blood would bring about God's mercy for the people. Actually, after that uh, sacrifice in the temple, he says to them that essentially they are absolutely clean before the Lord for all their sin. It's as if they've never sinned. So once a year, that bull, that goat, their blood is shed on the mercy seat. And after that, the people are clean. Now, when you read Isaiah 53 in that context, and you see that Jesus is described as a sin offering, just as the bull and the goat are described in Leviticus as a sin offering, you'll see that actually he is the true unblemished lamb. He, you know, it describes him like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He is the true unblemished these bulls and goats, had to be totally unblemished, they had to be uh, effectively without Mark or, or, or whatever, that he is that true and lasting sacrifice. That by his death, the people are healed. The people are made clean. There was that rebellion caused, a chasm between God and his people, and yet by his death, that chasm is closed. There is peace. They have peace with God. He's dealt with the sin that stands between God and his people. Their rebellion need not continue. And actually, when you realize this, you realize that actually the sacrificial system is there to point to Christ. For hundreds of years, the, the priests would go into the temple or into the first the tabernacle in the temple and they would make restitution for the people's, people's sin. But all of that is building and pointing to one day that final, perfect, better sacrificial lamb who will make restitution for the people's sins. In Hebrews chapter nine, he describes the contrast between the between the high priest system and Christ. He said, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. So talking about the, the the priestly system, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. So every year the high priest is entering the holy place with blood that is not his own. For he then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once. Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That he is the lasting, the true and better sacrificial lamb than any of the priestly system could account. And it's through his death, in verse 11, chapter 53, you can see that many may be accounted righteous. That through this lamb making a sacrifice of his life, many may be accounted righteous. He's something of a substitute. He takes their sin and he makes those who believe in him righteous and clean before the holy God. Now what this means, if you're a Christian, there's a sense to which the Christian life, you know, we're very aware of our own sin. You can only take the Bible for a moment to see this when you're reading the Bible to be challenged by your own sin. But actually, it's really important that Christians walk around with a knowledge and a conviction of complete righteousness, complete cleanness before the Holy God. It's easy to struggle with that sense of uh, sin that kind of so easily entangles. Sometimes the things that you've done or the things that have been even done to you can linger on you. That sense, a lingering sense of not being clean of not being clean before the living God. And sometimes that even holds you back from coming in to worship, coming to worship God. And this picture that Christ is giving us of the final, ultimate sacrifice for sin should tell us that that's not the case, that actually we are totally clean before the living God. There's no need to worry about, uh, no need for our sin to hold us back from coming into the presence of God because we know that we've been made clean. You must also see in this picture you must note the love that is driving this sacrifice. See, note that it is Christ who's pursuing the reconciliation. If you think about the situation, we've got uh, a king and a bunch of rebels. That's us. And in any situation we have got a kind of conflict like this, you'd expect that it is those who are in open rebellion who need to make the move towards reconciliation. They are the ones who need to lay down their swords, who need to repent and come and say, look, we need to to have reconciliation. If you're in conflict with someone, say someone's really angry with you, and they're they're really uh, kind of, whatever the word is, uh, filled with rage towards you, you can try and reconcile with them, but it's only when they deal with that anger towards you that they they address that problem, that you can have a relationship. It depends on that party who's angry on you. And, And yet... It's exactly the opposite in this situation. It is Christ who does the reconcile, right, reconciling. It is He who makes the first move. It is He who runs out, so to speak, making this sacrifice. What this really points to is the character of God that He desires to be reconciled with His people. He's not holding back. He's resolutely, persistently seeking reconciliation with His people. And actually, this is exactly what we see in the Old Testament all the time. The people are rebellion, rebellious, and God comes out to meet them. Comes to desires reconciliation with them, that this sacrifice is driven out of God's love for us. See, in Romans uh, chapter 5, it describes it like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love for us, that whilst we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And really, this picture of sacrifice is an inherently loving one. Think about the parent who sacrifices their life for their, their money, their time, their sleep, for their children. You can tell I've got a 14-year-old <laughs> son. The, or the husband with a disabled wife, who becomes a full-time carer for his wife, who, who gives up his, his life, effectively, the time, the uh, freedom to be able to care for their, their wife, their spouse. When you see pictures like that, when you see parents sacrificing themselves, you see spouses sacrificing themselves for their spouse, you see that thing and you think it is absolutely beautiful. And why is it beautiful? Because it is a manifestation, it is a physical manifestation of their love for that person. It is love made real. And so Jesus' sacrifice really deals with the rebellion in two ways. First, it makes atonement. It makes restitution for that chasm, that debt that we've accrued as rebels. But it also changes the orientation of our hearts. You see, remember, at the very heart of that rebellion is a lack of trust. Is a, you know, think about sin, the nature of sin. Think all the way back to Adam and Eve. What is their problem? It's not that they don't believe, God, don't believe in God. It's that they don't believe God. It's that they don't trust him. It's they say, no, actually, you know what? you told us not to do this, to eat from the tree. No, we're going to eat from the tree. We don't think you're good. We don't think you can be trusted. And actually, that's behind sin in our lives. If you're a Christian, that's behind... When we, when we sin, actually, it's because we don't trust God. So we have all sorts of different ways. You know, I, you know, I'm really stressed. I'm really desperate. I'm fine. I'm really tired. You know, I, I, you know, I know you said that that pornography is, is not going to help me, it's not going to assuage my, my tiredness, my stress, etc. No, I'm, I'm going to go there because I think, I, I think you're wrong. I don't trust you. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really, singleness is really hard. I find it really uh, hard to do this, but I know you've said that you're good and I trust you and, and uh, your love is better than life, but you know what, I don't trust you. I'm going to go and uh, date that non-Christian. There's that sense to which sin comes out of a lack of trust. But this speaks right to that lack of trust. Because actually in Christ's sacrifice, in the love that is inherent in this picture of him ultimately giving his life for you, his love is made real as a physical manifestation of his love. And in that love, we have an assurance that he can be trusted. What that says actually is if you're a Christian and you're struggling with sin, maybe even you're going through suffering, wondering, is God good? You have an answer to that question. We have a physical answer to the question of, is God good? Every time, even before we even think about God speaking to you, leading you, ministering to a situation, we have a physical reminder of the answer to that question. The answer is yes, God loves you, that God can be trusted, that God is good, whatever you're going through because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's the what, but also Jesus does what's not expected in the how he does it. See, the servant described in this passage comes in weakness. See, in verse 2, he described, really, as something of an ordinary man. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. So this servant comes in in ordinariness. He comes in weakness. He allows himself to be rejected. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 3. This person comes both in, 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 in ordinariness and in weakness. You see this all the way through Jesus' ministry. He's opposed by the Pharisees. Even the people from his own town try to kill him at one point. He, even John 6 that I read at the beginning of the service. He's been deserted by many of the people who follow him. Actually, if you just look at his ministry by the time he dies, you might say it's not very impressive. Only tw- 12 guys have followed him and one of them's deserted him and, and betrayed him. So Jesus has come in weakness, in humility. It's far from the conquering king that you would have been expecting from Psalm 110. And yet, even in this passage, we get the sense that actually it is strength uh, clothed in weakness. That that's not the full picture. In chapter 52, verse 15, he said, So he shall sprinkle many nations. He will justify, you know, he talked about that sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat. He will justify many nations. This man's going to have a global impact. And of course, we see that global impact today. Nearly two billion, two billion people who would call themselves Christians. Whole nations bow down before him. So we have a bit of a paradox here. We have a global king. Many will come to worship him as king who will change nations, change history. And yet he's coming as an ordinary man who suffers rejection and allows himself to experience weakness. as a relatively insignificant ministry in those three years of his, of his ministry. What you have to see really is the humility in this servant. It's actually very opposite to the leadership of the world. Think about the dynamics in politics or in business, the way that they so often a maneuvering for control, so often a, a kind of office politics of who's going to be in control, who's going to be in power, who's going to be able to assert their will. I mean, maybe you might say it's a bit of a parody, a bit too far, but think something like Suits, one of my favourite programmes. You know, the guys, basically, if you watch Suits, you think power is exercised by being aggressive and by basically whoever shouts the loudest and whoever then storms off basically asserts their will and gets their way. And there's something to, some truth, even if you think, okay, it's a bit extreme, there's some truth in that that usually in this world power is taken at all levels, in all businesses, politics, etc. And yet Christ does the exact opposite of this. He is the true king, the one who has all authority and should be worshipped, and yet he takes this voluntary weakness. He takes this ordinariness. He doesn't uh, assert this power. Instead, he comes in humility. And there's a delicious irony here. You think the rebels have rejected God out of their own pride, their own assumption, I know best. I can be the one who's in control of my life. I don't need you. And yet God is showing the exact opposite to these rebels in coming, in humility. It's almost like I'm saying God practices what he preaches. He's consistent both in his commands and his character. In calling people to follow him, that requires humility. It requires you to say, I'm not the best person to be in control of my life. I trust you, God. There's a humility there. And yet he is demonstrating the very humility that he's calling his people to. Verse seven, like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. Can you hear the humility, the obedience in that passage? He's modeling the very response that he's calling his people to. It's also different in how his ministry ends. Think about the people of Israel. Think about all the servants, those great servants, Moses, uh, Abraham, Isaiah, all these different servants in the, in the history of the people of Israel. All of their ministries end. Moses dies, he's replaced by Joshua. David dies, Solomon reigns. Uh, Abraham dies, uh, Noah dies, every leader of the people of Israel dies. No servant lasts forever. Except in this passage, there are hints that this servant will be different, that this servant's ministry will never end. In chapter 52, verse 13, it says, shall be high, actually other translations put that, shall be raised up. Now that raised up in that verse really is pointing to the resurrection. Saying actually he will be one day, that death will not hold him, that he will be raised up, that he will be resurrected. Verse 10 doesn't even make sense without the resurrection. It said, When his soul makes an offering for sin, when he dies, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. When he dies, he will continue on, he will prolong his days, he will continue living. That is that doesn't even make sense. How can he die and also prolong his days? Of course, the answer is that in his death, he also then, three days later, is resurrected. And in that resurrection, he prolongs his days for all eternity, Seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning today. Verse 12, he will divide the spoil with the strong. How does a dead man divide spoil after he dies? The answer is there's a reward for his obedience that Christ, of course, is reigning at the right hand of the Father after his death. So the servant who comes in weakness who comes in ordinariness, is even stronger than death. And in fact, we can see that in verse one, when he described as the arm of the Lord. He's saying actually he's not just a man. He's God in the flesh. And so we have something of a paradox here. He's a servant who comes in weakness and humility, and yet he's actually God in the flesh. He's one who will change nations. He's a servant who who doesn't come to bring judgment on others, instead comes to bring judgment on others. On himself, a servant whose, whose very mission is, finds its crescendo, finds its completion in his death, and yet death is not the end. That death is only the beginning of his eternal reign or the continuation of his reign. So it's something of a paradox. And so then the question that I want to close with you this, this morning, the, the response, I think, that is pregnant in this passage is will you esteem Christ? Will you esteem Christ? See, in verse three, they esteemed him not. That means they didn't value him. They ignored him. They saw this ordinary man. They saw this man coming in weakness. They just scoffed. They had a muted reaction. They missed the significance of his sacrifice. In fact, they they even caused his sacrifice. In one sense, they you know, they they bring about the events that lead to his death. They remained in rebellion. There was no turning around. And ultimately, they remained separated from God, headed for an eternity away from God. And of course, if you look at across our city, you'll see that's the default response of many. They're simply not esteeming Christ. They're simply, yeah, not really interested. Or will you See that actually behind this ordinary weakness is a strong savior. Will you see the real true person of Christ for who he is? Will you recognize him? Will you recognize his the true reality of who he is? I think to esteem him means three things it means to value him, to celebrate him, to worship him, to celebrate his faithfulness, to celebrate that he was the perfect sacrificial lamb, that he was to celebrate his perfect example of faithful, humble service, to celebrate his sacrifice, and to celebrate the beauty of how God spoke to his people for hundreds of years, pointing to this moment. So will you esteem him? That's the first response that he requires. Secondly, will you obey him? How can you really tell whether you really esteem something, whether you really value something? You can tell by how it changes your life. You can tell by what's important to you, by how you spend your money. If you want to know what's important to someone, look at their bank statement. You can see what, what they do, what they spend their time on. So implicit in this esteeming of Christ is an obedience to him. You can't say he's valuable. You can't say this is the true king without following him. So there's an obedience that this picture demands of us. And thirdly, will you follow his example? See, in all of this, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, is introducing a new way of operating, a new way of living. In Mark chapter 10, commentators will argue he, he He brings to mind this passage when he's describing. He says, talks about, um, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Christ is introducing a whole new way of operating, a whole new way of leading. Think about the way he washed his disciples' feet. There's also a whole new way of relating to the world around us. Showing so us a new way to live, a beautiful life of service and sacrifice. Ultimately, a life of, of sacrificing your life to Christ, saying, it's all yours, have, have your way but also a life of serving and loving those around us, of walking in humility. We're called as Christians to go out into the world loving our neighbours in the manner, in the pattern of Christ, to love our colleagues, to serve our brothers and sisters in the pattern that Christ is giving for us in this passage. And in all of that, we will be pointing to that true servant king. In a moment, I'm going to give out communion And as we take that communion, I want to remind you that this is an opportunity just to to treasure Christ, to value him, to value the sacrifice that he has made. Now, I should mention, if you're not a Christian, please let the communion pass you by. It's what we call a family meal for those who are in Christ. But also, if you're not a Christian here, you may well hear this and think, actually, I can see who Christ is. The the scales have fallen from my eyes. I can see that he's not just an ordinary man, not just one who would die a kind of pointless sacrifice, but is actually the servant king. If that's you, I'd encourage you to come and chat to us. Come and encourage you to consider whether you should value him, whether you should esteem him with your life. To call you that that is the only true response to this servant king to recognize who he is, to follow him, obey him, and seek to follow his example.